Schmidt, Managing Editor of Farm Equipment. Welcome to this episode of Farm Equipment's Used Equipment Remarketing Roadmaps podcast series. In this episode, brought to you by Iron Solutions, host Casey Seymour of 21st Century Equipment and Moving Iron LLC sits down with Alex Lowen, Used Equipment Remarketing Manager for Ennis Brothers. Their conversation covers the current used equipment and auction market in Canada and how much the exchange rate impacts the used equipment business. If you're tuning in for the first time, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this new podcast available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. By subscribing, you are alerted when each upcoming episode is released and will put a world of content onto the phone in your pocket whenever and wherever you want to listen to it. Before we turn things over to Casey and Alex, a quick word from Iron Solutions, who is making this podcast a reality. Iron Solutions provides dealers with an array of lifecycle management services that drive sales and profits. Their Iron Search and Iron Guides are all about managing your dealership more efficiently and profitably, while Iron Search allows you to directly showcase your equipment online to a wider universe of buyers. Visit www.ironsolutions.com today. On this episode, I will discuss the Canadian equipment market with my guest, Alex Lowen of Inns Brothers. I've known Alex for about five years and have a lot of respect for Alex at Inns Brothers and the way they do business. I think their process processes are spot on, and I've learned a lot of tricks from Alex and the crew over the years. Alex, thanks for being on my podcast. Hey, my, my pleasure, Casey. All right. Hey, so before we get started, I always like to get everyone's background and uh, not only their personal background, but the background of the dealership. So... Give me a little uh, little background on Enns Brothers and Alex Lowen. Sure, sure. Well, Enns Brothers, uh, Enns Brothers specifically started out in uh, in 1953, uh, and it was an Alice Chalmers slash New Holland dealership back in the day. Um, and it took about three years, and then uh, and then they took on the John Deere contract in 1956. Have been part of the Manitoba John Deere dealership group for since then. Today we've got nine stores. Uh, across across Manitoba, we've got the agriculture contract uh, along, and, and we're uh, we're an SBFH uh, SBFH uh, group. We've also got the golf and turf contract, and we have a fair size recreation business with the BRP uh, BRP uh, you know, snowmobiles, quads, and then uh, various other boats. As far as as far as my background, I actually came from the IT world. I worked for Oracle for a number of years. Oracle's a software company. I was the Western Canadian sales manager until uh, until in 2003. Me and uh, and a couple of guys bought our first store or our store that we bought out in Steinbach, John Deere store. It used to be Reimer Farm Supplies, and uh, so we've been in the John Deere business since then. In 2010, we merged with Ens Brothers. At that time, I was a regional sales manager, working with a couple of stores, and kind of changing my role from a babysitter to a coach. And uh, recently, I have moved into the position of uh, used equipment remarketing manager for the group, and uh, that's what brings me to uh, to where we are today. So, how do you think that background coming from the IT world has helped your view on on the ag equipment world? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it's, I don't know if it, I don't know if it changes or helps my view on the ag equipment world. I mean, I, I don't know why it was, but I, I always wanted to own an ag equipment dealership. And uh, as luck would have it, I got my way when we when we chased that down in two thousand two, two thousand three. 
I, I entered the IT equipment world because I wanted to make money. And uh, back in the late in the 80s and 90s, that was where you were. That's the kind of the career that you took in order to make money. And uh, very quickly in 2002, or actually after year 2000, when nobody was buying software anymore, then it was time to move over. What, what, what I would say, however, is that my sales management experience uh, within the IT world uh, has carried forward into, into the ag world. Sales management is sales management. Uh, it doesn't much matter. You're dealing with uh, you're dealing with people. You're dealing with uh, with customers, um, and trying to figure out how to sell something, trying to figure out how to add value, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, absolutely, I would say that my sales management experience uh, uh, was valuable coming into the uh, egg equipment world. But I was dumber than dirt with regards to egg equipment when I came on board. Other than I, uh, we still had a farm and we we ran equipment and all that type of stuff. So. There was a there was a steep learning curve that happened trying to trying to understand the egg equipment itself. Yeah, so I think you and I have a similar kind of path there. I didn't grow up on a farm. I don't have any family that farm or anything like that. So I'm I'm not a traditional farm kid that came to work for the equipment dealership. As luck would have it, I, I fell into this by accident. But there's a I feel like my perspective is probably a little different than most when I when I look at equipment and I, I think that not having that background might give me a little different per, uh, perspective on on the way the way I see the world. So I think it's a. I don't know that I have the same blinders on sometimes that that everybody else has on. Yeah. All right, man. Well, cool. So the U.S. and Canadian market are close enough to each other, but there are some differences in the two marketplaces as far as how you know regulations and those kind of things work. What what are some of the biggest differences between this, those two marketplaces when you from your perspective as you as a as a Canadian selling to the U.S. as a American selling to the Canadian market? For us, it's very obvious is that the value of our equipment can change dramatically and quickly based solely on exchange rate, and that's something that you guys don't have to deal with because the U.S. market is what defines what the value is, what the price is, uh, and we have to follow. And especially given the visibility that everybody, every customer has now using the internet. We have to be so aware of what the exchange rate is and what, what the real value of equipment is. It doesn't matter how we booked it in Canadian dollars. We've still got to follow for with price to the to the American market. So because of that, I mean, our, and our customers are watching the same thing. Because the equipment values change so much depending on currency, and because the U.S. market determines the price or the value, we have to have, we have to, be able to react quickly and our, our price lists uh, the, the, the price and value of our equipment changes I mean we watch it every day and we change for our sales team what the price is based on the exchange rate and, and that's because the customer is always watching the market via the internet and we've just got to stay in line sometimes it's favorable for us to sell into the US uh, sometimes it's easy for me to do wholesale business into the US and sometimes it's near impossible because uh, just because of the exchange rate so that's, that's the biggest complicator that we have, and that's the biggest risk that we have with, with, our, with our inventory is exchange rate. So, but, but because we've become used to that, we seem to stay prepared. We seem, we seem to stay ready, uh, but it's still, it's still something that affects us every day. So inventory turn, is, boy, is, that, is that one of your biggest metrics <laughs> that you cover? I mean, just because of the fact of the fluctuation in, in currencies that the you know, the faster you turn it, the, le- the least you have to worry about it. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, that is a very fair statement. I, I think that what we 
what we try to do or what we would like. We'd, we'd like a stable dollar, and it doesn't matter whether it's high or low, really. We just like something stable, and that's, that's when it becomes easier to do business. Uh, but because because we don't have a stable dollar, and, and currency exchange always is always changing, we'll pull, we'll pull triggers pretty quickly, depending on where we think the dollar is going to go, or, or just because we've got inventory that's been sticking around for a while, so we have to get rid of it. I mean that's that's a that's a whole new caveat that would be a uh, that's just a that's just a whole new animal to take care of. So so <laughs> how how did how did that work? You know when we were going through the slide that we went through coming out of fourteen into fifteen, you know, and into fifteen into sixteen, how how dynamic was that for your business? Well, it changed things a lot. So so uh, for example, for two thousand fifteen, I'm just trying to think what happened, but. Uh, in, in, in fiscal year 2000, pardon me, in fiscal year 2016, I don't want to say we were prohibited from selling into the U.S., but everything we sold into the U.S. was at a loss because we had bought it at a different at, at a different exchange rate. You start looking for different places to sell things. Um, and so we, we go to Western Canada, just as an example. We'll go to Western Canada to sell things depending on what the exchange rate is, or we can move it down into the U.S. Uh, for this year, for fiscal 2017, we've been doing pretty good, moving it moving our wholesale inventory into the U.S., you know, mostly to other dealers and whatnot, but uh, absolutely exchange rate is, the, it's, it's it's by far and away the biggest determinator as to where we're going to sell things. So Wholesale-wise, just, I, I'm yeah. just saying, retail doesn't much change things. I know I like to buy stuff out of Canada when I have the opportunity to do that <laughs> because I can play that exchange rate thing and I can make a dollar or two extra sometimes. Sometimes I get burnt doing the same yep. thing, but there is that opportunity to make a little more margin when, when you're doing that uh, just, just by shuffling paper around so there's there's some good opportunities there so that same exchange rate issue that's going to bleed over into the to the commodity markets as well because you're that fluctuation of of the price at the co-op for beans and corn or whatever it is that they're selling is that's going to be fluctuated by the exchange rate as well well that's just it and so and so for our for our farmer customers when the canadian dollar is weak uh, yes we're paying more for we're paying more for uh for hardware for equipment but the but the customer is also getting more for their commodity, yeah. and in the in the and, and conversely, when when things go the other way, uh, we're paying less for equipment, but they're also getting less for their uh, for their commodity. You never get that storm of uh, more for their money and less for the equipment. You don't never, never happen. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it still it still works. I mean, for for good for us, and that's yeah. that's one of our that's one of the saving things for us is that from a. From a retail perspective, we are generally, you know, if the, if the farmer's enjoying uh, the exchange rate, so are we. Um, if the farmer is not having a good time with the exchange rate and he's not getting as much for his equipment, well, that's working the same for us too. We, 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 it's costing us less than two because we're buying it from the U.S. Yeah, that's a that's a whole dynamic that we don't have to deal with. I'm thankful for that, but that's a, that that would definitely have to keep you just understanding that marketplace and how those exchange rates work on a daily basis, just going and looking at your equipment all the time would be, man, that would be, that'd be a daunting task. Okay. So obviously the, the growing season is, is going to be something that you're up against quite a bit, just because of the down like in Kansas where I'm at, we have a pretty robust growing season. We, we plant wheat in the fall and, you know, we cut it in the spring and we go pretty much till October planting and cutting stuff. So how's that dynamic work for you, for you guys compared yeah. you know, comparatively? Yeah, so so the guy, so we do the same thing with the wheat, with the winter wheat. We'll we'll uh, get it done in fall, and then and then by uh, you know late July, mid to late July, they're taking their they're taking their winter wheat down for the spring crops. We're usually done seeding by the end of May, 
sometimes are done early May, but for us, the wheat and canola harvest starts, you know, late July, early August. Um, and then the small grains continue through, through, through August. Soybean harvest for us starts uh, mid to late September kind of thing. Silage corn, we're taking it off in September. Uh, grain corn, we're taking off in October and, and sometimes as late as November. We don't take dry corn off. We've got to dry. We've got to dry our corn down because we just don't. We just don't have the growing season that allows it to get dry. From a hay perspective, our first cut starts mid June. Second cut early to mid July, and we very very seldom get a third cut. So, from a equipment standpoint, how many how many hours are you looking at on these machines that you that you say say a four wheel drive or say a combine or okay. something like that? So, uh, a typical four wheel drive or a typical. Uh, uh, field use tractor, whether it's a four-wheel driver or a row crop or a track or whatever the case is, would get between 500 and 700 engine hours in a year. And, and that's, that's, pretty much, that's pretty much across the board. For a combine, that's been, that's been creeping up. Uh, we used to get, and it was as little as, as five or seven years ago, we'd be, it would be very typical for our guys to have 200 separator hours and you know, 250 to 300 engine hours on a year. Now we're seeing that uh, that's been bumping up lately, and I, I would say now we've got a normal year for us on a combine is 250 separator hours, and uh, about 350 engine. What's driving that? Uh, I think the guys are going with bigger combines and less of them. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So the the S670, just as an example, it's not that it's it's not that it's on its way out, but. We're, we're the, the S680 has become the for us or the Class 8 combine has become kind of the standard, uh, and it used to be that even the Class 6 combine was a standard, and that's just not how it is anymore. We're seeing the same trend here that the S680 combine is becoming more of a, a sought after machine, especially on the used market. Guys had an S670 traded in on S680, they want that, that capacity and that speed to get stuff done, and I think a lot of our what we're seeing down here just because of our weather patterns and the way they've changed is that those, the planning window has gotten shorter, still have the same amount of days. It's just that there's so much rain here of late to get okay. that stuff planted. And then when, especially with it being such a heavy wheat area, all that rain that you were getting during, during planting time uh, has now fed over to um, wheat harvest time. And so trying to get those things done as fast as you possibly can, guys are going with, with bigger machines to get stuff done faster. We'll get back to Casey and Alex in a moment, but first a quick word from the company who made this new podcast possible, Iron Solutions. Iron Solutions has deep roots in the ag industry with products for producers, dealers, manufacturers, ag retailers, and service providers. Visit www.ironsolutions.com today to see solutions that streamline your operations, improve productivity, reduce costs, and speed your growth. Casey and Alex started their conversation by comparing the Canadian market for used equipment to the market in the U.S and specifically how the exchange rate and instability of the dollar presents unique challenges for pricing equipment. Let's get back to the program now and hear more about the local market Alex is working in, how farm auctions and online auctions are impacting Enns Brothers business, leasing conditions in Canada, and Alex's outlook for future sales. Let's jump into your local markets and start taking a look at that. So down here, we're, we're seeing a a bunch of retirement type auctions that are going on. A lot of on-farm auctions are taking place. Yeah. Um, seeing a similar thing in Canada. You know, I, I was I was looking at that when when you sent me this uh, when you sent me this uh, uh, template, 
and I don't know that we're we're affected more by local auctions. Or, as a matter of fact, I would say I don't think we're affected more by local auctions than we have been in the past. There's no doubt that they continue to go on, and that there are the guys uh, that are retiring that are getting rid of their equipment. But uh, but I don't know that that, or I, I don't think that that has changed much for us. What we what has changed absolutely is that the our local customers are looking more and more to the to the online auctions. And so we're seeing both price pressure as well as, uh, well, well, price pressure specifically because of guys going down or, or taking a look at, at online auctions. Um, and even if they're, even if they're not buying on the auctions, uh, they're, they're looking at them, which is causing, uh, which is causing some substantial price pressure. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, we, it seems like we have a lot more guys now that are spending time looking at the online auction than they are with some of the bigger auction houses that that have the on-site auctions. Yeah. Like a, a lot of those a lot of those bigger auction houses too have also made moves to where they're going to get into that online yeah. auction space. Our customers that we deal with, we are definitely being stacked up against against the auctions and and whether or not they will they will do that, you know, go buy from the auction or buy from us. You know, it really it really doesn't seem to be a be a factor right now because of the the lack of of late and low model equipment on the marketplace that that we're seeing you know we don't yeah. have we don't have a a whole bunch of it sitting on our lot and therefore that trickle down effect to the auction market isn't isn't nearly as strong are you seeing similar things in canada yeah well so so for um uh, i've i've actually made i've actually made a quite extensive use of online auctions especially in the last i'll say last six months um, and that has to do with there's been there's been some good demand and we've we've been long on on equipment we've been long on row crop tractors and we've been long on combines so uh, for us we have found much better results on the online auctions compared to the live auctions um, the costs are much more controllable or much more they're much less and they're much more controllable um, and it just seems that that uh, that we're able to do better. Uh, selling stuff online than we have been uh, selling it at a, at a at a big auction house at a, on on site. Even even locally, guys have bought our equipment. We, we've sold equipment on like we've been using uh, a number of or a couple of of uh, online auctions, and uh, we've even sold some of that stuff to some of our local customers. Or local customers have bid, and uh, it's becoming. I don't want to say a standard way for them to buy equipment, but it is it is a way for them to get some of our. Uh, to, to take advantage of some of the equipment that we've got out there because the, because it's been aged. Yeah, and I, I think I've said it in a previous podcast where I think that if this is the year where if you wanted to take something to auction that is a, a late model piece of equipment, 2015 or newer, you probably are going to do okay, you know, with with, uh, with that piece of equipment because there's not much competition out there for it. Well, I'll tell you, tell you what, Casey, we've done we've done just fine with our with our later model equipment on auction. Uh, where you really get kicked is if you put an older piece out there. Yeah. Mean, uh, you know, like I'm just thinking of a 9870 combine with, uh, with let's say, 2,000 hours. Well, guaranteed, that's not going to do well in auction. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, it seems like the, the 70 series and the early model S series combines, you know, were 12, 13, 14, stuff like that. Those machines have really kind of hit their, what they're worth kind of phase in, in life it seems like you know and yeah. there's no real shock what when they when they bring you know you have a 2012 or 13 model s670 with 1500 separator hours on it that brings 
you know, 140 or 130,000 bucks. I mean, that's just, yeah. that's not really a shock anymore. When it first happened, it was like, holy crap, what are we going to do now? But yeah. anymore, that's kind of the new norm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So as far as the auction market as a whole, obviously we've talked about the late and low model stuff and how, and that, and a little bit of a surprise about how, how good that market's been and how strong that's been. What are some of the surprises that you had that, that aren't probably a, a good thing for your business right now when it comes to looking at auctions? Well, like I said, I mean, uh, first of all, um, I'm, 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 I guess, a little disappointed, not a little bit, I'm, I'm quite disappointed as to the value add that the big auction houses uh, are able to bring. And, and, uh, and it would be, I, I, would, I would like to see that they were able to bring uh, a little bit of a higher, a, a higher price. But not only are they bringing a lower price, but they're bringing a lower price along with increased cost. That's, that's, that's just the, you know, the, the mechanics of doing business with an auction company, but what what we have been what we have found that just what's been very disappointing with auctions is the value that one can expect to get for older equipment or haying equipment or just anything that isn't kind of the the, the, the newer nicer stuff. Now that that having been said, uh, we're we're not going to auction with that stuff either. Then we're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna you know it's it, that's a retail environment and it's gonna have to stay that way. Do you feel like the auction market is driving the retail marketplace? I mean, it always has, but like it seems like in the last three, three or four years or so that that the auction value in the retail market have have kind of shrank, and, and really there is a a level of the, the difference between retail and, and auction has has really shrank down to where there's more of a, a representative percentage between the two. Do you feel like in Canada you, you're seeing that? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think we've got a pretty good handle of what we expect at auction versus what we what we expect at retail, um, and that that percentage seems to be fairly consistent for, like you say, Casey, for the for the newer equipment or for the newer lower hour equipment. Once you get into the older stuff, it's anybody's guess. Right. Yep. I will say the one positive thing that I'm seeing anyway is that when you look at that seventy series and you look at that early S series, or even you trickle that over to a to a, an early 8R or a early 9R or whatever it is, the customers that I'm dealing with, that I talk with, they've kind of come to grips with that and that they really are seeing that that is worth, is, that's what it's worth. And we don't really have the conversations we've had in the past about that. Now we have the conversation about trade difference and how right. big that is and not, you know, moving right. from that up to whatever it is. But there is uh, seems to be less conversation over you're crazy than there is, I don't know how I'm going to pay for that. So, um, that, that's where the conversations move to. Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. So looking out through um, kind of the end of 17 here, moving into yeah. uh, into 18 a little bit, what do you see as kind of some of your short and long-term struggles uh, and opportunities throughout the end of the year? Yeah, so so uh, our, our, our challenge here in, uh, in uh, southern Manitoba is that we are long on grain combines. Um, and grain combines don't move uh, don't move south. Uh, the U.S. market is looking for corn combines, and uh, so we're long on grain combines, um, which are a more expensive combine than a corn combine, and we've only got one place to, to move them, and that's right here. So um, we don't have a we don't have a trap door for them uh, as much as some of the other equipment, and so that's the challenge: is just making sure that the combines that we've got can move retail. Because there's not a real uh, there's not a real good wholesale market for them anywhere else, um, and uh, and we're yeah so so we've we've just got to move them locally. 
And, and, and just like you said, Casey, just now, uh, nothing new at all, but getting the customers to pay, to pay the bigger cash differences that are needed given the used market. Um, you know, like you said, they are starting to come to realize that their trades are worth less too. There, there's no argument about what their trades worth, but how, how on earth can we get the how on earth can we get the bigger cash differences that are that are needed? And that that's that is absolutely the, the challenge. And I'm, but that's nothing new. That's and that won't be just short term. That's gonna that's gonna continue. Yeah, forever, right? That'll uh, yeah. that'll go forever. When you look at that, and this is something that I've kind of transitioned my my thought process into. When you're looking at that, I'm more focused on my area of responsibility now than I've really ever been. I know, not to say that I, I ever lost focus of that, but you know, when thing when guys had money, you really had to go out and really go out and make sure that you were competitive with the entire marketplace and not just what your neighboring dealers were doing, right? I'm looking at my my 27 counties that we're covering and and, and some outliers that we're covering, and I'm I'm trying to maximize our used back into that area as much as we can so we can maximize the parking service business and all the things that come along with that. So we're, we're looking at different ways of prospecting customers and, and really going after everyone we can in our area. So wh what are you doing as far as, you know, driving that sales guy to go prospect customers? What, what are you doing different now than you were three years ago? Yeah, I, well, I don't know if it's much three years ago, but, but I get your point there. We have, I, I think we are starting to, to act as if the machinery, the equipment is far more a commodity than it used to be. And we are, we are moving to a, I'll call it a local services based solution uh, on anything that we're doing. And what I mean by that is that when, when, when we sell a call mine in, in, in our retail world, or we sell a piece of equipment in, in our retail world, we're looking at what are we providing around that piece of equipment in order to uh, in order to maximize some of the value in order to maximize the reason why the customer wants to buy from us so uh, at Ans brothers we've got a we've got a, a brand offering called total farm solutions that brand TFS or total farm solutions encompasses all aspects of what we're trying to work with our customer including technology um, including data uh, insights and analytics like we help them with that. Uh, agronomy, optimization, fix and repair, um, you know, water management, all that type of stuff. Um, and we, we, try to, we try to wrap that around our product to provide something that's unique relative to both our local competition uh, and something that is unique relative to what's available for them when they buy on the internet or when they buy from a dealer far away. So just as an example, and I, I think, well, I know that I've talked with you about this, Casey, but just as an example, if, if a customer buys an S680 from us or, or a, a, a newer combine, a combine that still has warranty, uh, what we do is we've, we've branded that combine as a performance plus combine, just as an example. And that, uh, that customer, well, after he's bought that combine, is responsible for, for putting fuel into that combine and that's it. We do all the fix and repair. We do infield fixes and repairs. We do inspections at the end of the season. All the inspection, the work required, all that type of stuff is included, is included when they bought that combine for the next two years. So the customer knows exactly what that combine is going to cost them over the next two years because we're taking care of all the, all the maintenance, all the repairs, the optimization, making sure that that machine stays up and running in the field. We provide something that is, that is over and above 
what John Deere provides as a warranty, for example. And, oh, I mean, and for example, if a belt goes, we replace belts uh, in, in the field. So it's something that we've done in order to make sure that our customers recognize uh, the product that they're getting when uh, when they're buying locally is a much different product than they're getting than just buying a combine. Let's say it's at auction or buying it at another dealer. We're trying to keep our used equipment local. We're trying to keep our used equipment in in prime condition, um, and trying to keep our customers happy that way. And, and it has really helped us differentiate. First of all, it started helping us differentiate against our real competition, which is the uh, the other brand name dealerships out there. But even lately, uh, we've been finding that it has really helped us uh, when we're competing against, well, when we're competing against the internet, and, and making sure that our combines stay local, and and uh, and making sure that what we're providing for our customers is different than just hardware. Yeah, it seems like risk management and um, cash flow increase or increasing cash flow is, is such an important part of the sales process right now. We we have a we have a similar similar product that we're that we're doing with, with ours as well where we're you know managing all of the on-farm operations as well as uh, doing some different stuff like that where you're, I call it I have like a maintenance free lease kind of what I'm as the kind of looking at you know we're trying to take that machine lease it and then build in the cost of operation into that like you said just putting fuel paying their insurance and paying whoever's driving it you know that's really all I have to worry about and and driving that so we're, we're trying to do that I don't know that we've actually got a good foothold of that yet, um, but we, we definitely are trying to manage customer risk as much as we can. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So when you look at, on those machines, do you, you use PowerGuard yep, to, yep. to go out and do that? And do, do you look oh, at any aftermarket stuff? If you can't put it under PowerGuard, do you look at something different or is that machine not eligible no, if it, for that? If it's, if it's not eligible for PowerGuard, then we we deem there to be a little bit too much risk for us. And, uh, and so we won't sell it as a performance plus machine. Um, if it's not eligible for power guard, but, uh, we have looked at Casey, we have looked at, at some alternative providers for extended warranty. Mm-hmm. Um, and we continue to look at that, but we have not moved forward with anything at this time. Gotcha. So that kind of leads into, into the next question I have down here, leasing equipment. Now leasing equipment in Canada is a little different than it is in the U S correct? Yes, I think it is. Yeah. Here, the financial institutions or the lending institution is is going to bear the brunt of that blow. But in in, in Canada, it's it's more like if you lease something, it's it's really just goes back to you guys. Is that is that correct? Am I understanding that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, lucky us, as a, <laughs> as, a, as a as a John Deere dealer, we get to have recourse on on all of our John Deere finance or John Deere credit, John Deere finance provided uh, uh, financial vehicles, including leases. So that's been that's been both good and bad, um, and I think mostly good. I, I, I certainly can't complain about it. On one side, it has caused us to be cautious in the, in the past. It has caused us to make sure that we're on side when we do a lease, uh, which has caused us to be able to flip those leases, you know, mid midterm, because we're because we've got the customer to buy down to a point, or because we've got the customer to pay down to a point where they've got some equity in the equipment, and it's much easier to flip them into a, into a new piece of equipment, release them some equipment uh, in the second, third, and fourth flip. While we've been cautious, at the same time, it allows us to get very, very aggressive on our leasing. We get aggressive, but at the same time, we've got to be very, very aware. So just let, let me let me give you an example. If I if I sell a unit or if I lease a unit today. I have to I have to build into my lease 
the buffer or the margin to allow me to accommodate currency ex like exchange differences five years from now or three years from now, whatever, whatever the term of the lease is. Be, and the customer knows that. Uh, we've, be, we've become used to being quite cautious. But because of being cautious, I don't think that we've ever got into trouble with leases um, because we have to be so aware of that. I'm going around in circles here, but we like leasing because uh, because it allows us to beat the competition. The, the local case dealer cannot provide a lease that is as aggressive as us. So just as an example, we might we're, where we might have a 50% residual value, uh, the case dealer might be at 35 or 40% on, on that particular scenario. And the case dealer can't change because he doesn't have recourse. And because he doesn't have recourse, he's not able to choose whether he takes this lease or not. It's, uh, it's uh, his finance company that's choosing that where we have a little bit more influence over that. So we have found, we have found that leasing allows us to get some business uh, versus the competition just because we have, uh, uh, we've got better control. Do you feel like your customers are more in tune with leasing now than they might have been in the past where that conversation comes up more or is it still a retail note driven marketplace? So the customer is a little more aware. I think that it is, uh, well, it's incumbent on us to explain the lease. Uh, in, in our jurisdiction here, we have uh, uh, leasing is, I mean, when, when we do a lease, it has to be full disclosure. Everybody has to know everything. Uh, they have to know the residual value. They have to know the, uh, the interest rates. They have to know, everything has to be disclosed. So it, it didn't used to be that way. It was, used to be as you just provide a payment and that was it. But now the customers are fully aware. They have to be fully aware, and, and they essentially sign away saying that they are that, that they they know what the five points of the lease are. So the answer is yes, Casey. So just based on just the way your your relationship with with John Deere Financial and everything else, you are able to be immensely more competitive than your than your competition around you. Often we are. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Man, that interest or that uh, exchange rate, you guys are really have to watch that. I never would have thought about that. But when you said that, so how, how do you go about guessing what the interest rate or the uh, exchange rate is going to be in five years? Well, and, that, and that's just it, is that there's, there's historically, historically uh, over the long term, the currency today is where the currency normally is. Uh, and so we, we always kind of, we always kind of think that the currency is going to be in the 130 to 135 range or 75 cent range, like that, that, whichever, which the inverse, whichever way you're looking at. So we, we have, we have in mind that the currency is going to be where it is today, but we've just always, our, our residual values are always such that we take that in, we take that into consideration. We'll, we'll never get so aggressive on residual values that we believe that this is exactly where that machine is going to end after three years. Uh, we'll always take a, we'll always take a substantial buffer on that just to accommodate for currency. It's a whole new level of, of research on top of everything else you have to do. So yeah, yeah, that's uh that's crazy. So let's jump into some equipment markets here. EOP just opened up here not too long ago. Um, we're starting to look at planners. What's your planner market look like coming into the year? <laughs> yeah, very robust. So for us, it's it's been relatively fresh that we've been able to grow corn uh, to to grow grain corn up here. Um, the varieties are such now that, they, uh, that the growing season allows us to do that uh, and the price is such that it makes more sense for the farmers to get into corn than, you know, than wheat or canola or whatever the case was. So because of that, uh, over, the last, uh, over the last, I'll say, 10 years, uh, there has been a slow kind of push into, the, into, into planters. It used to be that we just didn't see planters up here at all, uh, but that's been happening at a, at a robust rate over the last couple of years. 
the the thing for us right now is every I don't, I don't know how many um, how many quotes we've got out there right now on EOP planters, but there's, it's an awful lot. Um, and what's what's nice right now is that uh, often we're taking a look at selling a planter without a trade because the guy doesn't have a planter right now, or we're 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 we're, we're selling a planter and taking an air seeder in trade, which we're very, very used to and we're okay with that. The big thing for the guys right now and for the farmers right now is that they don't know what row spacing they want. Uh, that's been a big deal for us because uh, we've we've got anywhere from you know a lot of a lot of guys will have twenty inch rows, some guys twenty two, some uh, the majority I would say is at thirty right now, um, and then for soybeans they're doing split rows. But uh, that's been the big thing is these guys are all getting into it. They have the opportunity to set their spacing, you know, both in uh, both with the planter as well as with the as with their corn head. So we're uh, we're having a little bit of fun that way. You know, we've got a couple of exact emerge planters up here. Guys are really, really liking them, and so there's the there's always the question: Do you want to go with a with a, a narrower exact emerge or a or a or a, a big normal planter? And that's that's been some of the choices that the guys are making up here too. What what? How big are most of your planters? What size? How many rows? Usually TBs. Uh, so we'll do a. I don't want to say a small planter. A normal small planter would be a 16 row, but uh, there's quite a few 24s. And then all the DBs. 60s, but, 90s, 120s, all of them? Uh, actually, no, no 120s, 90s, so, yeah. Okay. Got, no 120s. Are, is the exact emerge planter a uh, guys kind of lean towards that just because of the planting, planting window and try to get more planted quickly? Or is that, you know, how's that, how's that mix work? Yeah, that's just it. Is that we've, got, we've got guys very interested in, in the exact emerge. But like I said, is they, they, they seem to prefer going bigger and slower. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Rather than narrower and fast. However, I mean, we've got a, I think we've got one DB90 out there right now, and the guy's planting at 10 or 11 miles an hour all the time, and he's bragging it up. I, I would say that the exact, we've, we've got some real good interest in the exact emerge. The guys really like what they're seeing. Right now, they would prefer to go big rather than spend the money on speed. Yeah, we've got one guy down here that I can think of off the top of my head that's got a 24 row exact emerge. 1775 and he's uh planting like 72 acres an hour or something like that so he's yeah. uh getting after it man so that's that's putting some seed in the ground so sprayers you know you guys have you're a cad dealer so you have a kind of a standalone sprayer group and that is that is that right well we we did okay we did, have did. A, okay we did have a standalone <laughs> sprayer group and we have moved that sales team we've integrated that sales team into our into our just our regular ag sales team so how do you see sprayer sales shaping up for you is the r series sprayer been a, a good a good mover for you guys yeah it's been very good yeah quite a price increase and, and so we had a we had a little bit of a slowdown for a couple of years uh this year we're finding that, that there's an upswing in demand because the trade cycle has the trade cycle has uh, has increased. There's been it's a longer trade cycle right now. At least that's what we're experiencing. Uh, so the demand has increased now because finally now the R series sprayers are, are a little less dollars than they were because they've got more hours. But uh, really, no surprises for us on sprayers. The, the, the demand is exactly where we expected it to be. Uh, we're we're sitting comfortable on sprayers and and uh, uh, yeah, exactly exactly where we expected. Is your used demand in the R series sprayer? Is that where you see most guys gravitating towards, or do you see still some, you know, 40, 40, 49 40s and, and thirty series sprayers that, that guys are looking for? 
No, they definitely want the, the R's, for sure. They mm -hmm. want the R series, but uh, we've got some pretty good demand for the 4940s and so on. Yeah, for sure. Okay. What's the average hours you put on a spur up there? Oh, I'd say 400 to 500 hours a year. Yeah. Pretty similar to what we do here, I guess. Um, we're talking a farmer-owned machine, that kind of thing. We get to the, yes, yes, the, yes. the bigger co-op stuff where it could be 800 to 1,000, just depending on who it is. Yeah, we're seeing more and more guys, I mean, less and less co-ops and and uh, and service providers and more and more uh, more and more farmer-owned machines for sure we're starting to see that too there's getting to be a bigger trend even as the economy has slipped at that, that their guys are looking for their own sprayer to use it's just yeah yeah you know some of the stuff you got to spray pretty quick if you're gonna if you're gonna take care of it so yeah exactly that's yeah. where we're at so four-wheel drives i would imagine are a uh, a bigger segment for you than than row crop stuff just because of the space you're trying to cover and, and the the size of your implements um, yeah. how's that market look for you? Um, it's actually doing pretty good, uh, doing okay. Uh, we had a, we had a pretty good uptake on the, on the RX series. Um, and we thought that was going to, uh, I don't want to say kill, but we thought it was going to have, have a bigger impact on the, on the twin tracks or on the RTs. Um, st we still have really good demand or pretty good demand for the nine RTs. We're a little long on them, but not as much as we thought we would be. Um, but we really, we, we continue to see reduced demand on, on real four wheel drives on, on tired, on wheel tractors, still good, still pretty good. Uh, and we still got an outlet for them as far as that goes, but, uh, retail wise, um, in our marketplace here, it's tracks, whether they're RXs or RTs. And I was the same way. I thought when the nine RX came out that that would cut significantly into the RT marketplace yeah. and I'm just not seeing it. You know, there's just, there's not, um, I don't know if it's the price differentiation between the two that's keeping guys um, over with the flat track, uh, the twin track machine. So, but it, it just it's just not there. And I, I'm that was probably one of my biggest shocks from you know well, looking at the marketplace. Yeah, and, and for us out here, I mean, especially when, especially in the flatland that we have here, uh, the RT as far as a seating tractor, as far as a, it's just a tug and tractor is a real real nice tractor, and it, and the RX doesn't provide a lot of advantage over that. So. Um, the RT is still a, a real good solution for guys that are just looking to pull an air seater around and uh, and don't have to get around slews and uh, and have nice square fields. When you look at demand right now, is your demand obviously for the late and low hour stuff? It's, that's obviously there, but you, are you still having demand for the thirty series tractor? Yeah, is that yeah, coming for, next? Sure. for sure. Um, um, the thirty series tractor is a it's a it's a it's a great tractor for us out here. Um, and again, it's the price point, right? It's mm -hmm. that's that's what's driving guys there, or that's what's keeping guys from getting into the RTs or, or into the RXs or whatever is the is the, uh, the price. And and the thirty series is a, is a great machine. Nothing wrong with it. Do you have many guys just because of, of the size of your of most of these operations and the stuff that they're pulling? Do you see most of them maybe picking up maybe that thirty series tractor as a backup tractor, but keeping keeping their their newer tractor at the same time and maybe trying to do Instead of buying a new one, maybe marrying those two together and see if they can't meet somewhere in the middle on 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 hours that they put on those machines. Well, yeah, what we're finding is that it's been it's tougher to to get that thirty series in trade mm -hmm. because they're going to just want to keep it. Right. And yeah. uh, it's not so much that they're looking to buy another thirty series, but because when the guys are buying a new uh, a replacement tractor, they're getting the they're getting the R series or the RT. But uh, sometimes they're just we're just not able to get the trade. Yeah, we're the, we're doing the same the same thing, man. It's it's it is uh, the seventy series combine or the thirty series 
tractor, whether it's a four-wheel drive or a row crop or whatever it is, yeah, most of the time they have that paid off, and they're just going to keep that as their as a backup tractor, and they don't really see any advantage of trading it in right now to to get something different. So yeah, we're definitely running into the same thing as well. So let's jump into combines. You know, we're kind of in that we're cutting wheat down here, getting cutting some canola and cutting wheat, and and we're in full full harvest mode right now. It seems to me like our combine marketplace. Um, I think we're going to have some action here towards the end of the year. Um, after we look at getting through spring harvest and fall harvest, both that going to the end of the year, there could be some, there could be some opportunity to, uh, to sell some combines. What are you seeing up, up in your neck of the woods? Yeah, it's been, it's, we've had a, we've had a pretty good run at, at combines now for us. Um, um, the, the, the late buyer isn't quite buying yet there. It's, that's about a month away. Uh, and we're trying to, we're trying to pull that forward somehow. Um, and, and having a, having our challenges that way, but, uh, trying to, trying to pull some of those late buyers into, into June, uh, maybe early July for us. I mean, like I said earlier, the S680 or the, or the class eight machine has become the standard. There has been a, uh, I'll say a slow trend towards moving to the, uh, to the larger machines as guys are chopping straw. I think the guys are getting, uh, well, I know the guys are getting real tired of, of waiting for the balers to come and take their straw. So they're uh, just incorporating their straw back into the field now. And, and, and when they want that capacity, then they, they need to move up to a bigger machine to, to run that ch- straw chopper. In one way, an advantage for us is that for us, most of our calm mines that we bring in right now and that we sell retail uh, have that tough small grains package, and that's a real must for our guys. It provides extra capacity. It's it's a smoother combine they can get later into the night, and and so the guys are looking for that machine up here. So the the retail customers are looking for that machine. So for us, it has stopped or at least slowed the customers from looking in the U.S. market because the the U.S. market is so full of corn combine. But at the same time, it prevents us from being able to move those machines elsewhere. They become very local. Which is fine. Uh, we're, we're like I said earlier, we've got to we've got to learn how to retail through them. More, more and more, uh, our guys are. Well, this is this doesn't have to do directly with the combine, but more and more, it, it used to be that we uh, all of our canola was done with a windrower. We take take it down with a windrower and let it dry out or, or let it ripen in the swath, and then take the take the canola with a pickup. More and more, as the varieties of canola have become more shatter resistant, uh, and and we can we can cut them straight. There has been a, a general trend towards losing the windrower. We don't need the windrower anymore, and we'll do everything with the with the combine. I mean, are you are you seeing swathers pile up on your lot, or, or what do you what do you how do you how are you combat that? <laughs> yes, to, 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 to be to be blunt, to be blunt, yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I will say, for me personally. I have sold more swathers into Kansas this year than I have into Manitoba. Shame on you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's there we're still we cut canola down here and we're still using using the swather um to to lay it down and a pickup head to pick it up. And I have not heard too many guys talk about that direct cut thing, so I'm sure that'll be something I'll need to pay attention to moving forward. How how do you think the uh the new S seven hundred series combine is going to impact the marketplace as far as as from a used equipment. You know, we're we're curious about that too. Obviously, there's not a lot of guys that are real excited for all the technology or for the for the additional technology that's coming on the new S seven hundred series. At least that's not what we're hearing so far. Mm-hmm. 
Um, we've got a unit coming in here that uh, that will obviously uh, try out and, and, and figure it out a little bit. But I don't know, Casey. I really don't know. Uh, I know a lot of the guys are, are lining up to to make sure that they can buy the last series, uh, the last yeah, the last series of the uh, of the S six machines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think they're all a little bit kind of, or they're they're all a little wondering what this uh, what this new S seven hundred machine is going to be all about. So real tough to say. I, I just don't know right now. Yeah, we have a handful of uh, DPFS S seven hundred S six seventies and S six eighty combines that we have, and and I. Th- Kind of to your point, I think we're going to sell those. Um, guys are kind of looking at those and, and kind of uh, kind of curious about that. Um, I think the S seven hundred series is going to be. I think it's going to be a great combine, just just like every other combine deer's manufacturer. But it's going to be. Uh, I'm worried about the trade differences and how and how we're going to overcome <laughs> some of that. And yeah, because with yeah. the price of used equipment the way it is now, in a lot of cases, especially in today's economy, you know. The way you have that used equipment priced, most of the time the guy buying the new one can, is also the guy that can afford the used one. And trying to find that that next person to come buy that used piece is going to be become a bigger and a bigger challenge. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Well, man, we've been going for a while, Alex, and I appreciate your time and love talking with you, man. You're you're a wealth of knowledge, and and I can't uh, I can't get uh, enough of of what you're laying down there. So moving forward, do you have any? Uh, Words of wisdom to the uh, to North America here to about about what's going on in the used equipment marketplace. No, you know I think that uh, if if there's one thing with regards to used equipment and one thing with regards to sales is that the more attention you pay to it and the more the more you think of yourself as a coach rather than a rather than somebody who knows everything, uh, the better you can do. Uh, I you know it's that's what makes this business fun, right? Is that uh, is that there is no solution that we can just lay out there and say this is what it is. Um, it's, it, it, it keeps fun because it keeps changing. That's right. It's never the same and it's ever evolving. And sometimes you have to eat some humble pie to, to, uh, put yourself back into check. Thanks Casey and Alex. We've got even more used equipment remarketing resources that we're sending your way. In addition to this hosted podcast by Casey Seymour, we're also tapping into his expertise across all our informational channels, including an Ask the Expert feature on our website, where you can ask him your questions directly. Check it out at farm-equipment.com slash asktheexpert. He'll also be making regular contributions to our eWatch e-newsletter and in print in our Farm Equipment magazine. Make sure your free subscriptions are up to date so you don't miss a thing. You can also catch extended podcasts from Casey on the Moving Iron Podcasts available on SoundCloud. Thanks once again to Iron Solutions for sponsoring this series. Iron Solutions provides dealers like you with an array of lifecycle management services that drive sales and profits. The Iron Search and Iron Guides suite of solutions is all about managing each dealership more efficiently and profitably, while Iron Search allows you to directly showcase your used equipment online to a wider universe of buyers. Visit www.ironsolutions.com today. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest industry news by registering online to receive our free newsletters. Visit www.farm-equipment.com today. We hope you'll tune in with us again in two weeks when Casey sits down with 21st Century Equipment. For Casey, Alex, as well as our entire staff here at Farm Equipment, I'm Kim Schmidt. Thanks for listening.